All right, we will dive right in. So if you uh, could turn in your Bibles back to Luke uh, chapter 18, uh, we will be starting with verse 15 this afternoon. Luke 18, verse 15. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just ask that you be with us in these short minutes, that you would clarify our thoughts um, and help them to go smoothly, and that you would give us journey mercies as we go our separate ways after this meeting. We pray this in Jesus' name and ask you to be here with us in a special way. Amen. All right. Well, we're continuing on our, in our Luke 18 passage, which we started this morning. And I find it kind of interesting because after Jesus tells us all this stuff about prayer, he then um, begins to talk to us about um, eternal life. And um, I, I almost would think that this could be reversed in order and make sense. I am reminded of the fact that not everything in the Gospels is sequential. So I don't know how Luke came to the, to the way that he would write this, but anyway, that's how it seems to go. So we're going to talk this afternoon about gaining eternal life. And he starts in verse 15, and it says, And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus said un, called unto them and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such it is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. And I, I found it interesting when reading this passage that it talks about infants being brought to Jesus. I, I At first I used to read about the children being brought to Jesus and I didn't compare the passages. And I used to think that it was one event told by the different gospel writers. But it may very well have been multiple times that children were brought to Jesus. In this particular case, it says infants. So since, since the disciples were very human... And like me, they didn't learn lessons, you know, as readily as Jesus might have wanted them to. Perhaps they had to go through this kind of scolding more than once. But whatever the case may be, he says to them, let the little children come. And I have always resonated with this passage, specifically as my father has raised me, as the oldest child of 11 children, and, um, and then also through my work in the pro-life movement with Right to Life of Michigan for 10 and a half years, I've developed a great love for children. And I've always not shied away from telling people, audiences that I speak to, that we as a church need to have the attitude that Jesus had toward children. Children are not an inconvenience. They're not a burden. They're a blessing, and they're the future of our country and our world. 
As a matter of fact, if you look in the Old Testament particularly, you find that barrenness is viewed as, a, as the result of sin, and often is the result of sin. Remember, the Pharaoh took Sarah into his household, and he put her in his harem, and he wanted to be with her as a man is with a woman. But God restrained his hand from touching her. And it says that while she was there, his whole household, from his least servant to any of his wives, they were banned. They were not able to conceive. Because that is a punishment. And yet so often today, I feel that it is viewed as a blessing, even in some church circles, for people to be barren. So I will roll off that soapbox for now, but I just wanted to bring that out. But then we see Jesus say this, of such is the kingdom of God, and then he says, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter in. Have you ever told a little child something that was totally bizarre and not true, but they believed every word you said? I have. And I've had it happen to me. I remember one particular time when I was little, my uncle said that he had a magic finger. And I said, well, well what do you mean you have a magic finger? He says, well, I can light the fireplace by just point, blowing on my finger and then pointing it at the fireplace and it will light. Well, at that time, I didn't realize that my grandparents' fireplace was an electric fireplace that you plug in and it had these fake flames. I thought it was a real fireplace. And so I was like, this is, this is interesting that my uncle has this power. And I believed him for a long time. I don't remember when the myth was dispelled. Maybe one time when he forgot to plug it in. I don't know. All I know is he had a switch. He was able to make it go off and on. And he made me believe that it was his finger. Or if you've ever read The Wizard of Oz. And I say read because the movie doesn't bring this out. But in The Wizard of Oz, when they get to the Emerald City, they're all told to put on these glasses. And these glasses are emerald tinted. There really wasn't that much emerald about the Emerald City, but everybody in the Emerald City was wearing glasses that were emerald tinted, so everybody thought that it was an Emerald City. And of course, the wizard was just a man behind a curtain. I bring this up just to say that children are very impressionable. They are very believing. They are very trusting. If you say something, they will hold you to it. Even if you haven't said the words, I promise... They will remind you of what you said, and then they can sometimes hound you. I know because I was one of those children who, when my mom said maybe, I counted that, I tried to count that as gospel and hold her to it as much as possible. But the point I'm trying to make is that when, when children are um, given news, they believe it. I had the privilege of having Uncle Charlie Vandermeer from CBH Ministries on my podcast a couple years ago. And he made the point 
that approximately 80 to 85% of people that become believers in Jesus Christ do so before the age of 12. And I didn't print out the statistics, but I saw a poll that asked people in different demographics, when did you come to Christ? And it was overwhelmingly in the childhood range. By the time you got to 60s, I think it was like 5 or 10%. And by the time you got to 70s, I think there was one person in that poll that had gotten saved after 70. So is it possible for God to save someone after 70? Absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. As a matter of fact, the man who wrote the music for the musical Meet Me in St. Louis, and he wrote the song Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, I believe he was saved at 85 years old. And he actually rewrote the lyrics to make it a Christian Christmas carol. Um, and Johnny Erickson Tata has recorded it. So if you ever get a chance to look up the Christian version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, sung by Johnny Erickson Tata, it might be out there on YouTube. So God will save those who are old. But he primarily saves children and then builds a foundation in their lives of his work and saving grace. And so he's saying that even if you're not a child when you come to God, you have to have the faith of a child. When I was a kid, my dad told me to do something because it would keep me safe. I believed him because he was my dad and it was his job to keep me safe. And the vast majority of my early perceptions of God as my father came from my father as my father. For some of us, that's not that great of a thing. But I think it's important for us to realize that we need to take things on faith, not overcomplicate things. We, we love to overcomplicate things in, in, in Christian circles. To overcomplicate theology. To overcomplicate baptism. My dad will often point out that when the Ethiopian eunuch was saved in the desert under the tutelage of Philip, the evangelist, he says, What doth hinder me to be baptized? See, there is water. And today we, we tend to be like, Well, you should go to this six-week class just to make sure you understand. See, it's not our responsibility to baptize the right people, I don't think. I think our responsibility is to baptize people and to leave the results to God. Now, obviously, if you have serious reservations about someone, I don't think it's totally wrong to voice them and get them out on the table. But I think we've overcomplicated this. The Ethiopian eunuch didn't have a chance to prove himself as a Christian. Before he was baptized, what did Philip say? He said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And it says that Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, Philip baptized him, and the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And if you read about church history, you find that he was a great catalyst for the gospel in his country. So, that's just an example of how we need to have simple, childlike faith and believe that God will work out the details. That we don't need to overcomplicate things. 
We do that when we say, well, it's not enough for me to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I also have to do work. I do have to do work for Him, but only as a result of my salvation, not as a requirement. See, He paid a debt He did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I couldn't pay it. I'll never be able to pay it. Can we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 39? Acts 2, 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off. The promise is open to everyone. If we humble ourselves and have faith like a child, He will accept us. And then I also want to talk about in this um, example is another way that we can be like children in our faith is in our excitement for the things of everyday life. Our excitement for seeing God provide for us. Our excitement at seeing nature. Our excitement at seeing other things. One of my favorite things is to do certain things with my nephews and nieces. Because they get excited and they notice things that I would not would maybe pass by because I'm an adult and I don't really take the time to care about those things. But when I see their fascination, it makes me reappreciate things. When I see how excited they are to open presents at Christmas and things of that nature, it just gives me, gives me a whole new excitement for the season. And I say that as an introduction to this story. Charles Francis Adams, 19th century political figure and diplomat, kept a diary. One day he entered, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, also kept a diary, which is still in existence. On that same day, Brooke Adams made this entry, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life. Spending time with our Father in Heaven should be the most wonderful part of our life. I'm right there with you when I say that it's not always. Sometimes when I come to church on Sunday, I'm thinking about what's going to happen after church. Instead of being in that mindset. But, but this little quote here goes on to say, The father thought he was wasting his time while fishing with his son. But his son saw it as an investment of time. The way to tell the difference between wasting and investing time is to know one's ultimate purpose in life and to judge accordingly. One of the old Catechism says it this way, what is the chief end of man? It's to know God. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do we enjoy Him? He enjoys us. We're the most important creation that He ever made. When He got done creating us, He said, it is very good. 
You are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We're the only creation like that. Okay, so the first step is becoming like a child. Second step is be humble. Luke 18, 18 to 21 says, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, and that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, Do not kill, Do not steal, Do not bear false witness, Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these things have I kept from my youth up. Jesus being Jesus, though, knew that he was guilty of at least two of these right off the bat. Number one is do not bear false witness. Because the young guy was basically telling Jesus that he was perfect. And number two, well, perhaps it's not, um, well, that one's not in this passage, but he basically addresses the fact that the young man didn't mention the first commandment, which was to put the Lord God first. Have no other gods before me. He knew that this man had a god of money before the god of the universe. Oh, some, some radical people will, will look at this passage and they'll say, that's why I live like a bum, because I'm not supposed to have possessions. So I live like a homeless person and I hoard my money because I'm not supposed to live like I have money. Obviously, if God calls you and tell, calls you to sell everything you have, do it. But the point here wasn't that it's wrong to have stuff. The point is that your stuff, young man, is what he was saying. Your stuff, young man, is keeping you from me. So go sell what you have and then you will have eternal You'll be able to have eternal life. And it says later in the passage, and when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was rich. There's another rendering of this story when it says Jesus looking at him loved him. Sometimes parents deny us the things that we want because they love us. My parents didn't just give me everything I wanted off the toy shelf because they didn't want me to grow up feeling like the world owed me a living. We have a generation of young people today that in the public square thinks that the world owes them a living. They think that the government's supposed to answer all of their questions and concerns. Yet when 
Biblically based charities want to help people in their time of need. People shun that. Why? Because along with the physical meeting of that need comes the truth of the scripture, which is, if the Son, therefore, shall set you free, you will be free indeed. You see, if you don't have a change on the inside, no amount of changing on the outside will do you any good. I had to learn this lesson because I wanted God to change me on the outside. I wanted to have a strong body. I was like, God, if you get me out of this chair, then I can serve you. And he was like, I don't need to change the outside. The inside's much more important. So, our second point is be humble. The lack of humility in this man's life kept him from God's best for him. Can we look at Luke one thirty-five quickly? Luke one thirty-five. Somebody gets that, they can read that for us. And then later on in that passage, which I probably should have included, Mary's response was, let, let it be according to your word. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, so let it be according to your word. She didn't make excuses about why she couldn't do it. She asked the question, but she must have asked it in a humble attitude, a little bit humbler perhaps than Zacharias. Because Zacharias was struck dumb when he asked his question. So I think there was a little more cynicism in his words. But she asked the question, she received the answer, she received encouragement that her aunt, that her cousin who was much older was pregnant as well. And then she went, goes and spends three months with her. I don't think that's an accident. I think it was the encouragement that she needed. John Newton said this. It was in the, this is how it was quoted in, in the film Amazing Grace, but I think it's pretty close to what he actually said to someone. And it's my favorite scene in the movie. He's sitting there as an old man. And he says this, Although my memory is fading, I remember these two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. Those are the most important things to remember. It's interesting that often when Alzheimer's patients will lose the ability to remember who people are or have regular conversations. They can still remember words of old hymns that share gospel truth. 
Because the truth abides forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. So the third point, after becoming like a child and being humble, is to put God first. Luke 18, 22-25 says this, Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto them, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard that, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I used to picture an actual needle, but I heard at one point that that was actually kind of a reference to small holes in the city gates where a camel would have to literally get down on its knees and scoot through the hole uh, with, their, with their master pulling them through the gate. And so that's the picture that Jesus is bringing up, that it's easier for a camel to do that than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? It's illuminated in Proverbs chapter 30 when the writer of Proverbs 30 says, Don't give me so little that I curse you. Don't give me so much that I forget you. Just give me enough so that I will continually keep you in my mind. That's a paraphrase from me, but it's in there in Proverbs 30. The idea being, like Jesus said, we should pray for our daily bread, not our monthly allowance, not our yearly stipend, our daily bread. Perhaps no one typified this more than George Mueller of Bristol, who in his life had very little in the way of personal finances, but had the equivalent of millions of dollars passed through his hands through his lifetime to care for the orphans in his community. There were times that I've heard about when he would sit down to breakfast with his kids. There'd be no bread and no milk. They pray and thank God for their food and someone knocks on the door. He said, well, our bread truck broke down. There's no way we can get it to the bakery in time. Would you be willing to take it? And he would take it. A little while later, someone else knocks on the door. It's a milk truck. Again, they had no way to get it where it needed to go. Somebody needs to take it. So they had bread and milk for breakfast. Now that doesn't mean that you don't prepare. It doesn't even mean that it's necessarily wrong to take donations for purposes. But one thing that you know if you've read about George Mueller is that he wanted to be a preacher before he was saved because in his culture, where he was, that was one of the richest professions you could be in. 
So he was in that profession to gain money. And so his response to a changed heart was, I'm never going to verbally ask for specific things again. I'm just, I'm going to trust God. And God provided. And as we look at this rich young man, we need to realize that we need to put out whatever it is that's between us and God. Maybe it's our time. Maybe it's some of the habits we have. Whatever it is, we need to put that behind us. We need to be able to say that we need him so that he can help us. He said to the Pharisees, I'm come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I used to think that meant the righteous didn't need a savior or didn't were all, had already chosen righteousness and so that's why he was saying it. But no, he wasn't. He was saying that if you think you're righteous, there's no way I can help you. I want to give you my righteousness. But if you think your righteousness is enough, there's no room for me to work. But when you say, God, I can't do it, I need you, then he will show up. If we look at 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19, I think this is a good balancing passage to the passage that we just read in Luke because Paul specifically addresses the rich in his congregation. And you'll notice he doesn't tell them not to be rich. But he does give them some insight into good stewardship. So, 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. If somebody has that. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. I don't know if you know the name S. Truett Cathy, but he was the founder of Chick-fil-A. He founded his restaurants on biblical principles. They are not open on Sunday. Someone asked them about 10 years ago, oh, it would be more likely that there will be a hamburger on the menu someday or that you'll be open on Sunday. He said it's far more likely that there will be a hamburger on the menu because being open on Sunday is not an option. Now, I'm not here to say that it's wrong to go out to eat on a Sunday, because I have, and I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with it. However, I greatly respect people like him and those that own Russ's restaurants for having the conscience and conviction to allow their employees to have a day of rest and worship. God rested on the seventh day. That's why he wants us to have a time of rest. If we work consistently seven days a week, when are we going to rest? Because we naturally don't do that. And he knew that about us. And you see in this passage, 
And I might have included a couple verses previous to that where he says, charge those that are rich in this world. And then he goes down these guidelines and he says, do good, store up treasures for yourself in heaven. Use what you have to do good for others. And a lot of times we wonder, well, why doesn't this rich person do this much or, or do more for other people? And a lot of times they do way more than we think they do, but they choose not to do it in the spotlight. What did Jesus say? He said, let your giving be in secret, and the Lord who sees you in secret will reward you openly. I love when I see stories of people doing good who had no inclination that their good works were going to be publicized, but then they are by other people, which that's another thing that the Proverbs say, let another man praise thee and not thine own lips. And then you realize that there's a lot of good going on in this world, even with all the bad stuff that is. And we have a lot of hope. Because Christ is risen from the dead. That's our hope. I just want to close with this story. Franz Joseph Haydn who, was, who lived from 1732 to 1809, was present at the Vienna Music Hall when his oratorio, The Creation, was being performed. Weakened by age, the great composer was confined to a wheelchair. As the majestic work moved along, the audience was caught up with a tremendous emotion. When the passage, And There Was Light, was reached, the chorus and the orchestra burst forth in such power that the crowd could no longer restrain its enthusiasm. The vast assembly rose in spontaneous applause. Haydn struggled to stand and motioned for silence. With his hand pointed toward heaven, he said, No, no, not for me, but from thence comes all. Having given glory and praise to his creator, he fell back into his chair, exhausted that's what this whole passage is about God getting the glory when we persist in prayer when we are patient in prayer when we are proper in prayer when we become like little children And when we are humble, when we choose to be humble, and when we put God first, that's when God gets the glory. You notice all throughout Scripture, He doesn't choose the people that the world thinks are high and mighty. He gives truth and callings and messages to people that the world sees as weak so that he can manifest his power. When he was choosing 
a leader to lead the early church in its early days. He didn't choose this learned theologian. No doubt there were some, and even some that believed on him. He could have said, Nicodemus, after I go, I want you to lead my church, because Nicodemus was a believer, at least at the end. But he didn't say that. He gave that job to people like Peter, who was a loudmouth fisherman, who was one of the first people that we know of who could have regularly worn a t-shirt that said, open mouth, insert foot. Because he was always saying things that, in the end, seemed foolish. And he would have this great high, this great moment of, of revelation when he would say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And God would say, or Jesus would say, God has revealed that to you. What a great thing. And then the next chapter over, he's saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. So, we know that God will use those who put him first and have the proper attitude towards him. And as we look at this passage, may we not be like the rich man who ignored Christ for what the world has to offer because the world is passing away. But the things of God are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that we've had before your word. We thank you for Dr. Luke who wrote these words. Thank you for inspiring him to do so. Thank you for his intention to detail. May you all be blessed and travel home safely. In Jesus' name, amen.